Well, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, We come this morning in our time together in God's Word to the second word that uh, Jesus spoke uh, from the cross, and it is found in uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, at uh, verse 43, which is the key verse. We'll be studying uh, this verse uh, and looking at it uh, together here in a moment, uh, along with the context uh, of these words. But I just say this as a word of reminder, and I mentioned this, I believe, last time, that every uh, detail of Scripture is given to us by God and is meant to communicate truth to us. It's truth about God, about His Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, uh, and ourselves, as we really are, and our need for Him. And that's true not only of the New Testament, but the totality of God's Word. Uh, And this passage that's before us is no exception. But before we get into the specifics, uh, let's look at the context. Um, We saw last time that Jesus, uh, in Luke chapter 23, is the account of his uh, crucifixion. Uh, He was... uh, rejected by the Jewish leaders and the crowds, and uh, they called for his, his death in chapter 23 and verse 21. When Pilate was determined to let him go, they said, crucify him, crucify him. And uh, when Pilate saw that he could not do anything to sort of uh, quell the crowds, in fact, it was becoming a riot, uh, he gave them over and surrendered Jesus uh, to their will, which was that he be put to death. And though Jesus was innocent, uh, he was subject uh, to this death. Uh, Now, we noticed last time that in verses 32 and 33 that Jesus was crucified, as it says here, along with uh, two uh, criminals. Uh, The word there that speaks uh, of these individuals is the uh, word malfactor. Uh, It means an evildoer. John used a different word in John 18 and verse 30, which just says a wrongdoer. However, Luke's word here for these criminals, these malefactors, is a stronger word. It, It... speaks of a person who is certainly a criminal, but one who is aggressive. They're, they're energetic in doing their, their, their deeds. They're, they're initiating criminal activity. We might say that this person is a felon, a hoodlum, a lawbreaker, a scoundrel, a bad egg, a thug, a wretch. In other words, the, the, the word that Luke uses to describe these individuals, individuals crucified with Jesus is that they're all around bad and evil and sinful, both inwardly and outwardly, from their motivations to the things that they did. Their whole life is just characterized by this uh, sinfulness and by this evil. And did you notice that in verse 33 of Luke uh, 23, we're told that Jesus was... Um, crucified along with these criminals, one on his right and the other on his left, which indicates that Jesus was in the middle of these, uh, these two uh, malefactors, these criminals, these evildoers, these thugs, these bad eggs. 
I think that when you think of, about that, and just ponder that for a moment with me, you come to realize the depths of Jesus' humiliation in his willingness to identify with us as sinful people, sinful individuals. A friend of ours years ago, back in Erie, lived outside of Erie in Waterford, a little town outside. And as you're going outside of Erie, there's a landfill that uh, is, is all the garbage and refuse ends up in there. And it's covered up nicely, so it just is like this mountain that keeps getting bigger and bigger over time because of all of our trash. But it's interesting, he pointed out one time that at the Christmas season, someone had, who owned the place apparently put a star on top of that mountain of garbage, you know. And he pointed out the fact, he says, it's all, that almost is a picture for me of Jesus coming into this world, into this sin-saturated garbage dump. And Jesus came into the midst of us to be our Savior. And, and when he is crucified between those two thieves, those two criminals, it's, it's showing us that the depth to which Jesus was willing to go to identify with sinners, the likes of you and me, and the worst of the worst. It also says to me that Jesus, in the midst of them, came to die in their place, in your place and in my place as well. Isaiah 53 verse 8 says, for uh, the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was stricken not for his own sins, but for the sins of others, including these two who hung on both sides of him. And Christ died, thirdly. He died for the sin debt that was owed to God. Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6 tells us. And it's in that context that Jesus speaks these words. And I'd like for us to consider here, before we get to that actual statement, some other things that stand out from this context. And it brings out into the fact, into, excuse me, brings out into the open these facts and these truths. The first one being this, that salvation is achieved by Christ. This account before us affirms, as does the rest of Scripture, that salvation is achieved by Christ and by Christ alone. Uh, if you keep your uh, marker there in Luke 23 and turn with me to Titus for a moment, the Apostle Paul in Titus chapter 3, beginning at verse uh, 4, says this, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. And there's nothing of me or you in that passage. It's accomplished by God, and it's made real in every one of us who are redeemed by the power and working of his Holy Spirit. In fact, if you turn back a couple pages to 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says concerning his own life, 
And Paul becomes an example, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You see, salvation is not something that I can work at or accomplish or achieve. It's achieved for me because I can't do it, and for you, because you can't do it. And Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the worst. And then basically is saying in that context that, you know, I was so bad a sinner that if God could save me, he can save anybody. If I could just sort of paraphrase his words. And in fact, John uh, 5 uh, and verse 24 tells us that this salvation that Christ uh, accomplished for us is his promise to his believing people. And, and notice what he said to those who would believe. John 5, 24, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come into condemnation. He has crossed over from death to life. If you're here this morning and you're in Jesus Christ, you will never face condemnation for your sins because your salvation is not based upon yourself, your works, or anything that you might do or even say. It's based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. For Christ accomplished salvation for us. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What a great news that is. What good news that is. What glad tidings that really is. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Secondly, I see, and it's illustrated by this uh, passage, is that not only is salvation achieved by Christ, but salvation is accepted by faith. By faith. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 tells us that for by grace are we saved through faith and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's a work of God. It's a gift that is to be received and how is it received? By faith. And God gives us even the, that ability to believe and to receive what he has offered us in Jesus Christ. It's accepted by faith. Now, let's look at our text this morning, because I, I, I've said these things, and you might say, well, how do you see that in this text? Well, I, I trust that you'll see it as we go through this together. You'll notice at verse 39, where our, our, our text picks up, that we read as our scripture reading this morning, tells us that one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. In fact, he was saying, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself uh, and us. His only concern was to be spared from his present suffering. If, if you have the ability to somehow release us from this punishment and, and spare us from physical death, then do it if, if you are who you claim to be. Show your power. He's doing just what the, the crowds were doing in terms of mocking Christ and insulting him and, and saying these vicious things. You might say to yourself, well, wait a minute. When I read Mark's gospel account, 
It told me in, in verse 32 um, that while, they were, while the teachers of the law were mocking him, saying he saved others, he can't save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we might see and believe. And the end of verse 32 says, those uh, crucified with him also heaped insults upon him. And you say, aha, see, there's a contradiction in Scripture. Mark says both of them were insulting him. This text that we see in Luke says only one was doing it. See, there's a contradiction. No, it's not. The accounts of the gospel are complementary but never contradictory. And here's why. As you're reading this account, it's true that both of those criminals were insulting Jesus and saying these things of him. But ah, one of them had a change of mind, had a change of heart. And isn't that a definition of repentance? That God calls all people to repentance, to repent of their sins and turn to him in faith? It's the whole testimony of Scripture. God calling people to repentance. It was, it was John the Baptist's message. Repent and believe the gospel. It was Jesus' message. It was the message of the apostles and the church since then for people to, to realize their sin and to turn from it and to change their minds concerning Jesus Christ that he's not just a good man. He's not just a moral teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's more than that. He is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Notice what it says here in verse 40. The other criminal rebuked him. Now, you have to think about this for a moment because while, as I, while I described for us crucifixion, uh, it's really a, a, a horrible death by asphyxiation where you can't breathe. Being, being crucified in that manner, you have to actually push your body up to take a breath. And then when you relax and get tired, you, the, the pressure on your lungs sort of makes it almost impossible to breathe. It's, it's suffocation by slow torture, in essence. And so when these men are speaking, they're, they're, they're actually having to speak. And they're having to speak, I'm sure, loud enough for people to hear it, for Jesus to hear it, for one another to hear it, and even the crowds to hear it. But notice the second criminal. He says, don't you fear God? See, while they're about to die, they're starting to think about their lives. They're starting to think about the deeds that they've done throughout their life. And they're starting to realize, maybe there is a God. Maybe there is a God that I am answerable to. My conscience has always bothered me that there's, there's, there's something beyond this life, and I don't really know what it is for sure. Maybe this criminal was thinking and reasoning, soon we will meet our maker, and I realize I've got to give an account. Don't you fear God? That one day you're going to have to give an account to him for your life and how you lived and used the life that he gave you? Don't you fear God that with your final breaths you will continue to curse and insult another who could potentially be your redeemer? Don't you fear God that you realize what you're rejecting by your insults, by your rationale, by your thinking? 
by your words? Aren't you one who fears God? Don't you fear God? Are you not fearful at that ultimate judgment to come where the books will be opened and every deed, every word that is spoken is going to be given account before the one who is the perfect and exacting judge? Notice what he says here. Don't you fear God since we are under the same sentence? We're being sentenced to death because we, we are criminals. We're, we've done evil deeds. We've broken not only man's law, but ultimately God's law. Verse 41, we are being punished justly. According to the human laws and standards, the laws of Rome, they had broken them. These men were criminals. We're not told what their deeds were, but they were deserving of death. It was only Jesus that was exonerated by Pilate in which he said, examined him and said, I find in him nothing wrong. He's done nothing wrong three times over. He's innocent. But these other two, they deserve the death penalty. They deserve to die. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. By our own actions, by our own choices, by the things that we've done throughout our lives, we deserve to die. And here you see this criminal admit confessing his rightful guilt. See, you have repentance. There's a change of mind concerning Jesus, but there's also a confession and acknowledgement of sin. In essence, he's saying, I'm wrong. I'm at fault. I chose to do wrong, and I deserve this punishment. We're not told if these two men were Romans, or Greeks, or Jewish men. But if, in fact, this man was a, a Jewish insurrectionist, an evildoer, maybe he remembered hearing at the synagogue somewhere in his upbringing, Ezekiel 18 and verse 20, the soul who sins is the one who will die. And maybe he heard somewhere in the teachings of Jesus that the wages of sin is death, which was ultimately echoed and penned by the Apostle Paul by the inspiration of the Spirit. You see, this man is now confessing that he's a sinner. He's acknowledging that he deserves to, to die for his sins, to die for his misdeeds. We are getting what our deeds deserve. And you know, every person apart from Jesus Christ stands under the potential of the condemnation of the Father. We would get what our deeds deserve. If Christ had not stepped into this world to be our Savior and to be our Lord, and we got what our deeds deserve, it would be death. Not just physical death, which is a consequence of sin. You know, that's why people die. Not because of some one sin in their life, but the ultimate consequence of sin. In the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. That's not only a physical death, but it's a, a separation from God, a brokenness in that relationship. 
in which we're spiritually dead, but also ultimately an eternal death where there is punishment that is brought about. This is not merely the reality of all human beings that we die, but the truth that apart from God we face eternal death. We face separation from God, judgment, and eternal punishment. Because like this one criminal, we're not only breaking human laws from time to time, but we're breaking God's holy laws. And thus we are answerable and accountable to him. Have you come to realize this in your own life? That you need a savior? That you can't save yourself? That you are accountable to God for the actions and the choices that you have freely made? That you will one day give an account to him? What will you say to him on that day? If he were to ask you the question, why should I allow you to be in my presence for all eternity? How will you answer that apart from the saving work of Christ? Do you think that what you have done will merit his favor or his blessing or his acceptance? The weight of scripture would indicate that none of us could do that. But how did this man come to this realization? How did this man who first insulted Jesus have a change of mind and a change of heart? Certainly he was probably thinking about all these different things as he was about to die. But could it possibly have been also the things that were happening around the cross? Did the words of the crowd seem to start to play on this man's mind? Look at this in Mark chapter 15 with me again. Mark chapter 15 at verse 29. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ the king of Israel, come down from the cross that we might see and believe. You say to yourself, well, what's significant about those, those words? Notice that they said he saved others. Maybe this man heard in his, and I'm sure he did, in his covert travels <laughs> to do evil about this wonder miracle worker named Jesus. Maybe he realized that Jesus indeed was more than just a man. They said he was the chosen one of God. Maybe he was familiar with the teachings of the Old Testament and maybe this coming Messiah. Could have been that. It could have been the charge that was written uh, on the cross that was above Jesus. The written notice. Matthew 27, 34. Mark 15, 26. Luke 23, 38. John 19, 19 and 20. Each give us all a little snippet of what that statement says. When you put it all together, it says, This is Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. I find it interesting that 
Vernon McGee makes a quote about this, because John tells us that it was written in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. When Jesus was crucified, they put a superscription over him in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. Greek was the language of intelligence, of education, of literature, and of science of that day. Latin was the language of law and order and of the military and of the government. Hebrew was the language of religion. McGee goes on to say, when Christ returns to set up his kingdom, he will be the political ruler, the educational ruler, ruler the spiritual ruler of this universe. How accurate was this superscription? Maybe he read that and saw this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And he was starting to put together and the Holy Spirit was putting together in his mind and in his heart all these things he knew about Jesus and he came to realize there's something more to this man than meets the physical eye. In fact, maybe it was even hearing Jesus who repeatedly said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And he's able to put together all these different pieces by the work of the Holy Spirit in his mind and in his heart. And his mind and his heart changes in repentance. He confesses that he is a sinner and then he turns to Jesus Christ in faith. Because notice what he says here. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's stated in the imperfect tense, which means he was saying this repeatedly. Maybe with each breath that he could push himself up and get enough air out of his lungs to even utter these words, Jesus! What does the name Jesus mean? Have you ever stopped to think about that? The name Jesus, Matthew 20, uh, excuse me, Matthew 1, 21. It's he who will save his people from their sins. The angel told Joseph, Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. The Lord is salvation. The Lord is Savior. And whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, the scripture says, will be saved. The name of Jesus. You don't need to know all the theology. You don't need to memorize the Bible. You don't need to know the catechism. You just need to know that there is a Savior whom God has provided, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. And whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus, remember me. Remember me. This is, this is a prayer request. If in fact this man was Jewish, maybe he was reciting Psalm 25 verse, verse 7. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Or maybe it was Psalm 106, verse 4. Remember me, O Lord, in your favor towards your people. Visit me with your salvation. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, Jesus was about to die, as, as this man was and the other criminal, in just a few short hours. And yet he's saying, remember me when you come, future into your kingdom. Could it be that this man even realized that there was going to be a resurrection? That somehow this man was not going to perish in death and remain there? Death is not the end of this man, Jesus. There's going to be a resurrection. 
Maybe he even was putting together by the Holy Spirit's enabling Mark 20, uh, 15, 29, you who are going to destroy this temple and in three days raise it up. Remember, Jesus spoke those words. And they thought, this physical temple that took 46 years to build, you're going to raise it up in three days? But the scripture tells us he wasn't talking about any physical temple. He was talking about his body that was going to be raised on the third day. This man knew that Jesus would not end in death. And salvation here is by faith. How do you know that? Because what could this man go on? What could this man say regarding his life? He had nothing to show for it. He just took Jesus at his word by faith. And that's how you and I are saved. That's how every person is saved, by faith, because of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. Salvation is achieved by Jesus. It's his work. Salvation is accepted by faith. And thirdly, salvation is assured by promise. Notice Jesus' words now. Jesus answered him. Now, I'm going to say the wrong thing here. Sorry, it's too late. Did he say that? He begins by saying, I tell you the truth, verily, verily. This is a saying you, could, you, can, you can take and believe because it is the absolute truth. I tell you the truth today. Not sometime in the future, not sometime uh, in the distant future or some other, other time frame. Today. Today is the day of your salvation. Today you will be with me. You're going to be with me. Where? In paradise. Isn't it interesting if you look at the gospel accounts that Jesus died before these other two thieves? He says, you're going to, you're going to be with me in paradise. Jesus was already gone and expired. His, his soul had gone into paradise. He says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. After these other two died, this man went to paradise to be with Jesus. And you know, the Apostle Paul said, you know, I struggle. I struggle because I don't know what I want to do. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, we don't think in those terms. We do everything to, to push that day off it as far back as we can. But as believing people, there's something far greater and far better that awaits us. And notice what Paul says. If I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Meaning, if I'm going to remain here on this earth as a follower of Jesus, I want my life to be productive for Jesus' sake. Yet I don't know what to choose. First, he goes on, I don't know. I'm torn between two. The desire to depart and be with, with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain on in the body. Better by far to go and be with Jesus. In fact, aren't we told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8 that we prefer 
to be at home with the Lord. And in the context, Paul is talking about what happens for the believer at death. We prefer to be at home. Are any of you homebodies? Well, we have to be, I guess, because of COVID in some ways. But you know what it's like to just be home? You, you like being home? Now imagine then multiply that a thousand million times over in God's presence being at home with the Lord. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Uh, interesting, uh, that word that Jesus used there. It's a Persian word. That, that means a park or a garden. Robertson says that it's an enclosed park or pleasure ground. And it's used two other times in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4, and Re- Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7. And both of them are a clear reference to heaven. And you know, Psalm 16 tells us this about what awaits the believer. Psalm 16, verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my body will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave nor let your Holy One see decay. See, because Jesus lives, as he said, because I live, you will live also. Verse 11, you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Today you're going to be with me in paradise. See, Jesus was reassuring this man who, who acknowledged his sin, who repented of his sin, who turned to faith in Jesus Christ, that when he died, he was going to go to be with him in glory forever. That's salvation, friends. Not just getting to heaven, but having an eternal relationship with the eternal God who made you for that reason, that you might know him and enjoy him, how long? Forever forever. And I find it amazing that in the very act of dying for the sins of the world, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. And on those three crosses, you have the one who died for sin, the one who died in sin, and the one who died to sin. What are some lessons for us? Well, let me wrap this up here. Number one, and I've already elaborated this point, so I won't uh, belabor it here, but it's certainly the most essential. Salvation is in Christ alone. You know, the cross is the great leveling plane. Everybody has to come to God by way of the cross. Just like in the tabernacle of old, there was only one entrance into there to bring that offering. There's only one way. And isn't it interesting? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me or through me. Salvation is in Christ alone. Secondly, I notice here, 
and this should be an encouragement to us, that both of these criminals had equal access to the Savior. One on his right, one on his left. They both had equal access to the Savior. They both heard the same things. They both had an opportunity to repent. But only one did. But only one did. In fact, that's the third point. The repentant man confessed, believed, and was saved. The other man was lost. Was lost. This account also, number four, affirms that salvation is never, ever by our deeds or efforts, but by faith alone in Jesus Christ and what God's word says about him. Did you notice that this man had no opportunity to be baptized? Not that we shouldn't be baptized. He had no opportunity to ever sing in a choir, teach a Sunday school class, lead another person to Christ, do any good deed. He couldn't do any of it, but yet he was saved because we're saved not by our works. We're saved unto good works. We do good works because we are saved people, but not to, keep, not to save us and not to keep us saved because salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. For, fifth, We have here given to us in Scripture uh, a deathbed conversion. A deathbed conversion. Someone said, we're only given one in Scripture to give us hope, but only one so that we won't presume. See, there's people they have in their minds, well, I'm just going to live my life, and when I get close to, to that age when I think I'm about to die, then I'll start thinking about God and eternity. Do any of us have tomorrow promised to us? Or even the next moment or next breath? Scripture says today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, because none of us are promised another day. So don't wait. Don't wait. And then lastly... Hallelujah, what a Savior. <laughs> that, that should cause you and me as believing people to celebrate, to rejoice, to, to say, praise you and thank you, O God, for so great salvation in Jesus Christ. Amazing what Jesus was willing to endure and what he did, in fact, endure to make us right with God. I trust that you will not only be encouraged by what you've heard, and respond to Christ in faith, but that you'll praise him with your life for saving you and making you his very own. Shall we pray? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this time together in your word. We give you our thanks and our praise. We worship you. We truly say, hallelujah, what a savior. A wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. A wonderful Savior is He. Thank you that your gift of salvation, Lord, is not something we have to earn, but we receive Jesus Christ by faith. Help us, Lord, to be trusting Him. Help us to respond to your Spirit's moving us 
and prompting us to that end. And Father, for all who already know you in that personal way through your Son, help us to rejoice and all the more be encouraged that we have so great salvation, not only for ourselves, but we have a story to tell the nations as well. And may we do that as you enable us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.